Welcome to Hearing Voices, the best of public radio from NPR. For Father's Day, we are talking dads. I know when my dad invites me over for a pancake breakfast, it means two things. One, I have to eat at least ten pancakes or it's not worth it to make the batter. And two, as soon as I'm done with that tenth pancake, a semi-truck full of paint's going to pull up in the driveway and we're going to spend the rest of the day unloading it. I finished my tenth pancake and we're waiting for the semi. I play my dad this tape of this performance art group I'm in and the music is loud, it's offensive, it's angry, it's headbanging and I know it is going to piss my dad off. The tape ends and my dad looks at me and smiles and says, Things seem to be going really well for you, Kev. The semi never shows. And my dad tells me he has cancer. He says, now don't worry, Kev. This isn't immediately threatening. I'm going to be around a long time. Storyteller Kevin Kling, from his CD Home and Away, you can find it at kevinkling.com. And now, Sarah Vowell with her story, Story of the Gunsmith's Daughter. If you were passing by the house where I grew up during my teenage years and it happened to be before Election Day, you wouldn't have even needed to come inside to see that it was a house divided. You could just look at the Democratic campaign poster in the upstairs window and the Republican one in the downstairs window and see our home for the Civil War battleground it was. I'm not saying who was the Democrat and who was the Republican, my father or I, but I will tell you that I am not the one who plastered the family truck with National Rifle Association stickers, that I have never subscribed to guns and ammo, and that Hunter's Orange was never my color. About the only thing my father and I agree on is the Constitution, though I'm partial to the First Amendment while he's always favored the Second. I am a gunsmith's daughter. In our house, or as I like to call it, the United States of Firearms, guns were everywhere. The so-called pretty ones hanging on the wall, dad's clients fixer-uppers leaning into corners, an entire rack right next to the TV. I had to move revolvers out of my way to make room for my bowl of Rice Krispies on the kitchen table. Now I even giggle when Dad calls me on Election Day to cheerfully inform me that he has once again canceled out my vote. But I was not always so mature. There were times when I found the fact that he was a gunsmith horrifying and just weird. All he ever cared about was guns. All I ever cared about was art. And there were years and years when I holed up in my room reading Allen Ginsberg poems and he hid out in the garage making rifle barrels and we weren't capable of having a conversation that didn't end up in argument. I have only shot a gun once and once was plenty. My twin sister Amy and I were six years old, six, when Dad decided it was high time that we should know how to shoot. Amy remembers the day he handed us the gun for the first time differently. She liked it. She says that she thought it meant that Daddy trusted us and that he thought of us as big girls. But I remember holding the pistol only made me feel small. It was so heavy in my hand. I stretched out my arm and pointed it away and winced. It was a very long time before I had the nerve to pull the trigger and I was so scared I had to close my eyes. It felt like it just went off by itself, as if I had no say in the matter, as if the gun just had this need. The sound it made was as big as God. It kicked little me back to the ground, like a bully, like a foe. It hurt. I don't know if I dropped it or just handed it back over to my dad, but I do remember that I never wanted to touch another one again. And, since I believed in the devil, I did what my mother told me to do every time I felt an evil presence. I whispered under my breath, Satan, I rebuke thee. Now, it's not like I'm saying I was traumatized. It was more like I was decided. Guns, not for me. Lucky for me, both my parents grew up in exasperating households where children were considered puppets and or slaves so my mom and dad were hell-bent on letting my sister and me make our own choices. 
So if I decided that I didn't want my father's little death sticks to kick me to the ground again, that was fine with him. He'd go hunting with my sister, who started calling herself the loneliest twin in history because of my reluctance to engage in family activities. Of course, the fact that I was allowed to voice my opinions did not mean that my father would silence his own. Some things were said during the Reagan administration that cannot be taken back. I won't bore you with the details. Let's just say that I blamed my father for nuclear proliferation and contra-aid while he believed that if I had my way, all the guns would be confiscated and it would take the commies about 15 minutes to parachute in and assume control. We're older now, my dad and I. And the older I get, the more I'm interested in becoming a better daughter. First on my list, figure out that whole gun thing. Not long ago, my dad finished his most elaborate tool of death yet, a cannon. He built a 19th century cannon from scratch. It took two years. After tooling a million guns, after inventing and building a rifle barrel boring machine, after setting up a complicated shop filled with lathes and bluing tanks and outmoded blacksmithing tools, the cannon is his most ambitious project ever. I thought that if I was ever going to understand the ballistic bee in his bonnet, this was my chance. It was the biggest gun he ever made, and I could experience it and spend time with it with the added bonus of not having to actually pull a trigger myself. I called Dad and said that I wanted to come watch him shoot off the cannon. He was immediately suspicious. He seemed nervous when I told him I wanted to record it, but I had never taken an interest in his work before, and he would take what he could get. I flew home to Montana. He loaded it into the back of his truck, and we drove up into the Bridger Mountains. Forest Service doesn't mind you um, setting off fiery balls of metal onto their property? Uh, you cannot shoot fireworks, but this is considered a firearms. <laughs> so that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I should mention that it is a small cannon. It's as long as a baseball bat and as wide as a coffee can, though it's heavy, 110 pounds. We get to the mountain. My dad takes his gunpowder and other toys out of this adorable wooden box on which he has stenciled Pat G. Vowell Cannon Works. He plunges his homemade bullets into the barrel, points it at an embankment just to be safe, and lights the fuse. The fuse is lit. This is like a cartoon. Oh, my God. Oh, there's smoke everywhere. It's like the 4th of July. Oh, beautiful forest space. I've given this a lot of thought. How to convey the giddiness I felt as the cannon shot off. And I wish there were a more articulate way to say this, but I'm telling you, there isn't. It's just really, really cool. My dad thought so, too. It's also loud. Louder than I can possibly convey over the radio. No, let me amend that. If you want to understand how loud it was, in a moment, not yet, but when I say... Turn the volume on your radio all the way up. Ready? Now. God. It was so loud and so painful, I had to touch my head to make sure my skull hadn't cracked open. Here's something my dad and I share. We're both a little hard of hearing. Me from Aerosmith, him from Gunsmith. Hey, turn it up again. Man! Good shot, Dad. Just as I was wondering what was coming over me, two hikers walked by. We forced them to politely laugh at our jokes for a while, and Dad set the cannon off again so they could see how it works. So you worked for the radio, and that's your dad? Yeah. That's neat. <laughs> then this odd thing happens. When one of the hikers says, that's quite the machine you got there, he isn't talking about the cannon. He's talking about my tape recorder and my long radio microphone. I stare back at him, then I look over at my father's cannon and down at my microphone, and I think, oh my god. My dad and I are the same person. We're both smart-alecky loners with goofy projects and weird equipment. 
and since this whole target practice outing was my idea, I was no longer his adversary. I was his accomplice. And what's worse, I was liking it. I haven't changed my mind about guns. I can get behind the cannon because it is a completely ceremonial object. It's unwieldy and impractical just like everything else I care about in the world. Try to rob a convenience store with this 110-pound Saturday night special, you'll still be dragging it in the door Sunday afternoon. I love noise. I make my living writing about it. And I'm always waiting for that moment in a song when something just flies out of it and explodes in the air. My dad is a one-man garage band, the kind of rock and roller who slaves away at his art for no other reason than to make his own sound. My dad's an artist, a pretty driven idiosyncratic one, too. And he's got his last Gesamtkunstwerk all planned out. It's a performance piece. We're all in it. My mom, the loneliest twin in history, and me. Here's how it goes. When my father dies, take a wild guess what he wants done with his ashes. Here's a hint. It requires a cannon. You guys are going to love this. You get to drag this thing up on top of the gravelies on opening day of hunting season. Mm -hmm. And looking off at Spinks Mountain, you get to put me in little paper bags and I can (laughs) take my last hunting trip on opening morning. I'll do it, too. I don't know about my mom and my sister, but I'll do it. I'll have my father's body burned into ashes. I'll pack this ash into paper bags. The morbid joker has already made the molds. I'll go to the mountains with my mother and my sister, bringing the cannon as he asks. I will plunge his remains into the barrel and point it into a hill so he doesn't take anyone with him. I will light the fuse. But I will not cover my ears. Because when I blow what used to be my dad into the earth, I want it to hurt. Sarah Val's Shooting Dad was produced for This American Life at thislife.org. Her latest book is called The Wordy Shipmates. We're talking dads on Hearing Voices. Next, Joe Frank lets us eavesdrop on a father-son phone call. I hate this nature stuff. How can you hate nature stuff? Nature stuff, that's what's out there in the world. Trees and, and water. We're living in this beautiful city much more beautiful physically than New York, with surrounded by mountains and water. I mean, it, it, it's an incredible place, and you don't seem to care about them. You see one bug, and then and all of nature sucks. I mean, it makes such a general statement. I think you always just get infuriated whenever I make a simple because point. I think you're robbing yourself of, of experience. What am I going to retain from nature? I'm not going to retain anything. Nature is just, it's just an aspect of life. It's just something that's there. It's, it's like the part which this like whole, you know, this big media super beast hasn't dominated yet because there's no big buildings there yet. That's, that's all. It's like another city, and it's like pre, you know, billion people, population, whatever the hell, you know. Wait a minute. You're saying that nature is just like a development and cities waiting to happen? Yeah. It's, it's just like a vacant lot, you mean? Yes, that's what I'm saying. Like it's just sitting there wasting away as nature until it becomes cities and streets and buildings and, and Microsoft? I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying that's what's happening. But you have no interest in it, you're saying, as just nature itself. You don't learn anything from it. It doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't. Yeah, it you teaches you stuff. It teaches you stuff about history. It teaches you, it teaches us, you know, I mean, nature, of course, you know, provides oxygen, you know, because, you know, you have, you know, trees there. But there are some aspects of nature which people don't find as amusing as you would. I understand that. But I'm just saying that when you're in a place that is beautiful and has mountains, I think that one of the great things about being alive is just looking at things and experiencing them, walking through woods, breathing the air, just seeing the, the, the world of nature. And it's true, if I propose that we do that, it's because I think that you're missing out on a very uh, important experience. And you're telling me that you really hate it. You really hate nature. And, and, and I don't hate nature. I just don't find it as amusing. It's like, you know what it is? It's like you and like art. See, Whenever I need, I know you're just gonna deny it or or just yell at me like you always do. But you know, whenever we're you know even even you know in like I don't know Washington or something like that or wherever we are, you always want to go to some stupid art exhibit and nobody else wants to go. But you want to go. What is with this art stuff and, and nature and just these these inanimate things that you just stare at and you're, and you're over you're just so overwhelmed by them that you find it amusing. But I don't. Mom 
mom sees me downloading MP3s on an occasion, and then she says, Zach, what is your life? Your life is all about downloading MP3s or whatever. What is with you and mom and these, like, general statements and, like, thinking you know it all for just because seeing one thing about me? interpret everything so incorrectly and in such a horrible manner. I just, I just don't understand why you, you can't... It's like, it's like everything aggravates you so easily, you know? Jack, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Stop. Calm down. Uh, calm down. Like, I remember one time I had this kind of idea that maybe it would be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer. All right, that is what I said. This is like, hey, Dad, wouldn't it be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer? And you, and you, and you, and you got so like horribly offended. He went, what is funny about that? There's nothing funny about that, Zach. Everything I say, you take so seriously. You don't understand the aspect of just you know meaningless chit chat. You don't understand the concept of that. You no. take everything so seriously. It's like you have a sense of humor that it's only when it, like you make up the joke or whatever. You, you don't understand when other people are joking. You have, to, you have to lighten up a little. You make a noise. You go, and you go away, and you, walk, and you start walking ahead of me. But only very infrequently do I do that. No, you do it all the time. You do it twice within yeah, the hour I, mean, I arrived in Seattle. No, wait, wait. If you're talking about yesterday when we got out to this uh, uh, ground. No, I am not talking about the freaking hike. I'm talking about within the 10 minutes which I arrived in Seattle. And you told uh, me that this guy had your bong and wouldn't give it back to you. Why do you feel as though alcohol is like the wonder serum or something what makes you think that this is like the thing that's gonna like like make your own ideas of how, of how your life should be led to seem you know more uh cohesive you know with your, the situation you're in i don't understand that that's not why i drink zach i i drink because it's uh, it just takes the edge off uh, my thought process of, of you know of being too aware of what's a, of my pain in the world i find drinking quiets down the my mind in, in a sense and i'm not so aware of the you know the things that i have to deal with my age my you know uh, lack of success to a certain extent when i'm drinking i don't care about that so much you know i tend to focus in increasingly more on my own my own writing you know and i celebrate myself you know as, as walt whitman said and that's what i find about uh, alcohol that i like I just think it's weird how when you get drunk or if you've been drinking excessively, it's just weird how it's like, it's almost like you think you're the most like, you know, you're like the messiah. You think you like, you have like, you're, like what you're saying is so important and so brilliant. And nobody, everyone's too nice to tell you that you're sounding like a fucking idiot. The alcohol makes you a volatile person. It makes you really cantankerous, you know, it's hard to deal with you. I don't like that. I think it's ridiculous. I think alcohol is, is, is ridiculous. Well, I'm only saying, Zach, that it's nice to know things about the Hutus and the Tutsis. It's not like you no, have to No, no, you said it's nice to know things about what's going on in the world. And oh, I know yes. what's going on in the world. I, I just never heard of the, these crazy African tribes that, that hack each other up with machetes. I didn't know about these people. Well, I understand, and there's no reason that you had to know about them. But that just because I use them in a poem doesn't mean it's gibberish. Just because you're saying because you never heard of them. And I thought they were valid to use in a poem. That it's a sign of being drunk. That's not but fair. you were drunk. I was not drunk. You drunk half a bottle of scotch. No, I didn't drink half a bottle. Yes, you did. So, you know, I was downtown anyway, and I figured, well, that's the end of that. I'll come back home, but I might as well swing by the liquor store and pick up
almost never. So I bought the Gordons and I came back home and, and I realized that I was in a terrific state of sadness at this, you know, about, I felt guilty, I felt uh, empathy, I felt helpless. So I got home with the, with the vodka, I put it in the freezer, and that's, you know, this is all a long-winded way of telling you why I want to talk to you, is because I suddenly realized that I was going to drink the vodka which was a very difficult thing to come to. I do not drink, and certainly haven't in my time here in Seattle. I do not open a bottle in the middle of the afternoon. But I did, and I decided to just take a chance and see what, uh, what and I'm not drunk yet, <laughs> And but I did have a few drinks. And it's not, I'm not sure that it's the, even the drinks that prompted me to, to want to share this with you, but it, uh, I wrote a little poem. Can I read it to you? <laughs> who could have known, who would have guessed that this was the day I'd turned drunk? Nobody, I think, nobody at all. And yet it should come as no surprise. It was an accident waiting to happen. God, that's trite. It was a brain waiting to be cooked down sweetbreads, better, a mind too fragile to hold up the soul in its keeping. Yes, bad father. It is a deal with a devil I've always been ready to make, but the grace of devils is rare as the grace of angels, and the darkness of despair and self-loathing is not quite, quite the darkness of death. The poem's okay, right? Mm. And it's scary, you know, because I... And I don't want to have to do that. But that's how the drunks do it, don't they? Uh, I'm sorry. Larry and Zachary Block from Joe Frank's program Karma Free at joefrank.com. More dads coming up in a minute on Hearing Voices. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. From NPR, this is HearingVoices.com. Welcome back to Talking Dads on Hearing Voices. Father's Day is a more difficult holiday than Mother's Day. You can't just buy some flowers and call it good, can you? But at least the stories are pretty good. I'm Jerome Lawrence Massett of Savannah, Georgia. That's my father, and I'm Larry Massett. But his name is not Jerome Lawrence Massett. Not anymore. A couple of years ago, I was having dinner with him, he must have been about 83 at the time. He looked up from his plate and said, apropos of nothing, you know, my name's not Jerome. Silence fell on the room. Some people there had known him for 60 years. No, he said, my name's Jeremiah. Well, oh, he shook his head. I've had lots of aliases, lots of aliases. And he went back to his dinner. Of course, I've known for a long time that I don't really know my father. But till then, I always thought I knew his name anyhow. Still, mystery is a common thing between fathers and sons. When I talk to other people about it, I find they don't know who their father is either. The way that I viewed my father was that he would get up at 7 o'clock in the morning, he would have breakfast, and he would go to work. And then come home for dinner, have dinner, play with us, watch a game or a TV show, fall asleep, and do it all over the next day. That was what I knew of my father. I never knew that he actually did anything. <laughs> That's Brian Brophy. Recently, his father was in the hospital with cancer. He was dying. Brian showed up with a tape recorder thinking if there was ever a time when they would get to know each other, this was it. When I saw him, I was very surprised because he had lost all of his hair and... He was about 40 pounds 
lighter, and you could see the tumors underneath his his skin because they had gotten so big. And he was in a he was in a he was in a bed, and he uh, he could barely recognize me. Meanwhile, my grandmother, who's ninety four years old, is having a gallbladder operation in Chicago. I talked to her last night, and and I asked her how she was doing, which is not what you should do to a ninety four year old woman going in for an operation. <laughs> I'm not doing very well, Brian. Is this Brian? Mike, is this Mike? No, Grandma, this is Brian. I love you, Brian, she said to me. How is your girlfriend doing? Well, I didn't really want to tell her that I hadn't seen her in a while and that she was living with a 25-year-old blonde surfer, auto mechanic, graffiti artist in downtown L.A., having her bottom tattooed with three black cats knocking over a bottle of milk. So I said, fine, Grandma, she's, she's doing fine. And she asks about you and, and hopes that you're all right. So <laughs> I told her that I loved her, and, and she said, I love you, Michael Bryan. Hello, you have reached the St. Vincent Hospital Pastoral <laughs> Care Department. We are currently unavailable to come to the phone. Please leave your name, telephone number, and a short message after the beep. We will return your call as soon as possible. Thank you. If you need a chaplain now... Father Tony was a Catholic priest who worked at the hospital with the sick and the dying. How can I help you? How can I help you? We live under the myth that we are in control. I can service my car, have the best tires, do the best everything. We live in a random world. I can get broadsided. We live in a random world. We need to make some sense out of nonsense. So we say it's God's will or something. I'm not sure my God would do that. We live in a random world. My father and I were not able to communicate with each other in the way that I wanted to. We did not communicate on an intellectual level or on a spiritual level or even on an emotional level. We did not communicate on a verbal level because he was a private person and he didn't want to tell me what he really thought about things. It wasn't important for, for me to know, according to him. Obviously it wasn't because he didn't tell me. I wanted to know about his early baseball career. And uh, he had told me things over the years about wor working down in Texas and, and the Appalachia countries and, and uh, the Stone Mountain Gap in West Virginia and the different teams that he played for at the AA and AAA level. But he, he told me about being in Brownsville, Texas. It was one of his great experiences with, with uh, Mickey Mantle and, and uh, Roger Maris catching Hoyt Wilhelm's knuckleball and uh, the golden arm of the, the great catcher that he was. When he was playing baseball down in Brownsville, Texas, he used to go across the border and go to the Catholic mission and uh, take communion. And uh, it was a very powerful time in his life. And he felt very good about himself, I think, because... Uh, he was able to continue his beliefs and the, the traditional Catholic beliefs that he held very strongly. And the Mass would uh, would be all in Spanish. And when I talked to him in November, he, he would tell me, he would give me the Hail Mary in Spanish. He didn't know it in English, I don't think. Ruega por nosotros pecadores. And uh, when I was at his, when I was at his hospital bed, when he was very, very sick, I said to him, "Ruega por nosotros pecadores." Maybe that would trigger some emotional response, some memory, whatever it might have been. I needed him to to say something to me about that, so that I I could understand what he might have gone through all those years. I didn't know. I needed to know. And he looked at me, and goes. 
It's all shit. It's all a bunch of shit. I don't believe in any of it. Don't talk about that. I I, I looked at him and, and uh, I started to stroke his forehead really gently. And, and he said, don't do that. Don't do that. And I said, well, why not, Dad? You used to do that to us when we were when we were quite young and it made us feel good. Because I don't want you to do that. I don't want to remember all those things. I don't I don't want to remember and he started to cry. And he and he and he cried for a long time and he got very embarrassed and wanted us all to leave the room. And uh, so my mother left and my sister who was there left and I said, No, Dad, I'm not leaving the room. I need to do this because I need to remember this too. And he looked at me and he stopped crying. And then he started crying again, and he felt good about it, and I got to touch his forehead. After the funeral, Brian says, he has found comfort in remembering his father's words of advice. Relaxed. Don't worry about it. Everything will be all right. That was what my father would say to me. Get over it. Simple phrases like that. They weren't deep. They were, get over it. This will happen. Move on. Don't look at it so much. My father, for 20 years, has been saying to me over and over, get your feet under a desk. This is obviously bad advice, but I like it anyhow because I know that when he was young, back in the 1930s, he had to travel all the time. He didn't have a desk. He barely had a home. He was an investigator for the Department of Agriculture. And the stories he tells now are all about traveling. Some of them I know by heart. My favorite is one that begins in Yellowstone, and ends with an amazing discovery. Goes like this. He was in Yellowstone National Park, and he had business at the headquarters. The headquarters. And uh, I completed my business. Maybe I better get a room and spend the night. Get a room and spend the night. Well, a ranger came up. I said, "Son," he says, "You better get out of here right now." You spend the night here, you and that car won't get out till spring. It's going to be a big snow. And here's a map. You follow this trail and get out of here. Well, that trail was only one car wide. And I went up, I know, higher than 10,000 feet. Scared to death the whole time going up. Soaking wet. And then I got on a mesa, and I thought I was free of things. Then it commenced to snow and sleet. I thought I was free. So I rode on about a mile or so, and then I had to go down. And looking down just scared the hell out of me. Going up, you don't see all that. But coming down, I had made up my mind if I was going to meet a car, he was going to back up, not me. I was afraid to move. So finally, after an hour or so, I came out at a little old town called Graybull. I was soaking wet from perspiration. I got out of the car to stretch my legs. There's a group of Indians on the sidewalk, the outside of a baker shop. They had bought a cake, and they were sitting on the ground eating the cake and the snow falling. And sometimes the story just ends here, in the snow, with the Indians eating the cake. But the real climax is a few miles down the road. And I'm telling you, I asked in the baker shop where there was a hotel, and they told me to go on to the next town, get out of there. So I drove on to the next town, was Cody, and named after Buffalo Bill. And it was the Irma Hotel. The Irma Hotel was the name of his daughter. Well, I got a room there. There wasn't any snow now. 
and I had a lot of pictures on the hallway of Buffalo Bill. Well, there was several with his hat off. But when he had his hat on, his hair reached to his waist. But when his hat was off, he just had a fringe. He was bald as a cue ball. That's it. That's the point. Buffalo Bill was bald. Or if that's not the point, still somewhere in this story, I'm convinced, is the meaning of life. Because that is, after all, the only story fathers have to tell. They tell it one way or another, even if they don't want to, and even if they don't know it. As far back as I can remember, I was always afraid of him. He never laid a hand on me, but his tone of voice always scared me. It was like he never gave me a chance to do anything on my own. And there was this impatience about me, uh, everything I did, as if I was stupid. It made me feel stupid. This is my friend Bob. He seems to have had a perfectly normal, unhappy childhood with one embellishment. When he was six, his father left the family, divorced, then left town for good and disappeared. Bob says he didn't care, didn't think about it for decades. Then, all of a sudden, he had to find him again. I wanted to find him because I wanted to ask him things about my past, and I wanted to ask him about uh, why he had been so uh, overbearing and what role he played in uh, my attitude towards the world that I had got so uh, continuously unhappy. Bob did find his father somehow 3,000 miles away, working as a chain-link fence salesman married to a fifth wife and a born-again Christian. The guy didn't sound real eager to see him, but Bob had great expectations. But when I finally saw him after 22 years, he just seemed like some normal guy. There was nothing intimidating about him. And I said, listen, uh, Bob, I never called him dad. I said, I, wa I want to uh, have some questions about my past. And I started to ask the questions, and he said, well, I don't want to talk about the past. The past is behind us. We don't need to talk about it. Um, and I said, okay. No problem. Um, we'll just live in the present. I'll go along with that. And in the present, the only possible topic of conversation was the Bible. My father would talk about the Bible as the Word of God, and the Word of God was sacred to him. Yet everything that was associated with the physical world and everything that human beings did was evil. Sex is evil to my father. Any deviation from uh, any of the social rules is evil and will take you to hell. Interesting, though, uh, all this business of Jesus and love and Christian love, um, side by side with this, in, in my father's mind, was a, uh, a desire to uh, launch a nu nuclear invasion on the Soviet Union and uh, sterilize all of Asia of human life. So, for the last ten years, Bob and his father have been carrying on a stupendous theological debate by mail. The ground rules are quite narrow. Bob composes 10,000-word letters on things like the first few lines of Genesis. If the first creation is light and it's on the, third, on the first day and it's in the third verse, then that means that the first verse, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is kind of an executive summary of the first chapter of Genesis. But the second verse says, and the earth was without form and void, which suggests that Prior to the first creation of light, matter existed, but it had no shape. The result of this apparently academic discussion is that Bob has figured out most of what he wanted to know about his father. It's like playing chess with a stranger if you do it long enough. And there's more to it. Bob says the whole business over the years has changed his life. I got into the habit where I could write a thousand words an hour and I'd sit there all day long and send out these huge l letters that were uh, single space legal size 20 pages long thing and uh, it's because of this debate with my father which on a superficial level really was mindless uh, nevertheless it forced me to think a lot about light and darkness and good and evil this whole attitude, uh, is it Manichaean, is that it, this duality business? Uh, I thought about that a lot, and I, it translated finally for me into the relationship of the sun and the earth, and matter and energy, and male and female. And um, I never in had any intention of, of 
wanting to be a writer. I always wanted to design machinery. In the past few years, I've been doing nothing but writing. And all I write about is, uh, is light and darkness and matter and energy and male and female in metaphors form. The last time I heard from him was about six months ago, and he said that uh, he had had a, uh, a stroke. I haven't heard from him since. He also said in his last letter to me that uh, he thought that uh, modern solid-state electronic circuitry was uh, being used in the agency of the beast. Now, some people blame the gap between fathers and sons on society. Fathers work away from home these days. Sons don't get to see them much. Still, the force that closes the gap is very strong. It's stronger than reason or reality. It is as though men have two fathers. There's the real one, who's out there somewhere, more or less. And then there's the one who lives on the inside and who is always there. If you can't talk to the one, you can talk to the other. That's the one thing that he would never, ever discuss. He would never discuss sexuality. He would never discuss... One thing I remember, I must have been about 15 or something like that, and I asked him point blank, what's the deal about it? And he said, you know how when your mother and your sister are in a bad mood sometimes, well, it's a, it's, it has a lot to do with that. And that's pretty much how he left it. But he never said anything else about it. I, I could not, you know, I would try to talk to him about things. I would try to get him to tell me about what it was like when he was a kid or, or what it was like when, uh, when, when he was going through school or what the kinds of things he thought about things. And, and he just he never let up. I mean, he never let go. He would, it, it, would, it was really like pulling nails. This is my friend Henry, and his story begins at the usual critical moment. I must have been in my late 20s and felt the need to actually spend time with him you know all before there was your dad you just you do stuff together every once in a while but I never really did a lot of stuff with him when I was a kid but but then I had a sense that okay I got to get to know this guy I need to get to know this guy I need to get to know this guy for me because I don't I, I guess I'd finally admitted to myself that I didn't know what direction I wanted to take in life but then just when he got to this point when he was just ready to know his father, his father changed. He became a stranger. He started to he started to collect things in the car. He started to buy all these cars and lose cars and got old dentist equipment. I mean, he had a whole a big, this elaborate dentist setup in the back of this station wagon and waffle irons and TV sets and washing machines. And, and he'd talk constantly. He would not stop talking. I mean, here was a person that normally didn't have 10 things to say in the course of a day who would never stop talking. He would, he would see things. He would start talking about the person walking down the street and the, that blue shirt and where the hell would somebody go out and buy a blue shirt like that. He'd seen that blue shirt in the store one day, and that's not the right kind of blue shirt. That man should never be wearing a color like that. And anyway, where did he get that ridiculous belt with that gold buckle? And I would be trying to figure out which guy out of the 50 people around us was he talking about. But when he would get like that, he was a real he was a real stranger. I mean, he was still my father, and I still loved him, but he scared the hell out of me. Really scared the hell out of me. I was terrified that at one point I was just going to go off the deep end, too. I was going to be sitting at home having dinner, and all of a sudden it was going to happen to me. And that scared the hell out of me, because I really didn't want to be like that. And, 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 I, and I couldn't stand feeling helpless. And that was the worst part about it, is that I just had that sense of here is the one thing in the world that you want to save and protect and cherish. And you... There's... nothing I could do. I remember one night he came when I was living in, in Maryland. He came, and I was... My girlfriend was there, was spending the night, and he came over. He was going to give me a car. He came over to give me a car. He pulled up pulled up in front of the house, it's like 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, pulled up in front of the house with the radio blurring, was dancing out in the street, and the neighbors were calling me, what the hell's going on? And so I finally encouraged him to get in the house, and I tried to fix him some food, and he was just going, 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 and flirting with my girlfriend and everything. He was going to give me this car 
All I had to do was take a drive with him down to the country so he could get this other car that he had. Well, my girlfriend was, was game, and we got into the car at uh, 4.30 in the morning or whatever to drive down to the country. And this was the most bizarre drive. Some kind of way we got lost, and he wanted to see a man about buying a cow or a tractor, I'm not sure which, and he was driving erratically, and my girlfriend was screaming, you know, saying, you know, I want to get out of the car, and, and I didn't bring my wallet, I didn't have any money. I think I had my driver's license, but I hadn't brought any money with me. And at some point, I had managed to get control of the car. I was driving, and he was listening to the radio, and he was changing the station every two seconds, and then some, a song, the, the Beatles song, Long and Winding Road, came on, and he started crying, he didn't like that. Then... Then we turned to some Doobie Brothers without love, and then he started, you know, philosophizing about without love and how can the world go on, and he just went off and off. And I told him to please sit back and, and stop jerking around because it was making it difficult to drive. And he got angry at me, pulled the keys out of the car, pulled the keys out of the ignition. And right as he pulled the keys out of the ignition, two blackbirds smashed into the front windshield of the car. And blood and bird feathers splattered across the front windshield of the car. I didn't have steering anymore, and I didn't have any brakes because power steering, power brakes. We're going off of the road. I'm screaming at him to get the keys. Give me the keys back. My girlfriend's screaming that she's trying to get out of the car. I'm trying to hold what's left of the steering with one hand, grab my girlfriend to keep her from trying to get out of the back seat, while I'm intermittently pushing my father away from me and trying to get the keys from him. Some kind of way we end, I don't know how it happened, that we were okay, we ended up in the middle of a field with, with like corn or weed or something around us. And he completely calmed down. I mean, the things that he would do, if I had done those things, I'm sure I would have been in jail for five, 50 years. And, and at some point I had a sense that if I stayed too close to him, something was going to happen to me. He would be fine. He would drive through fire, and everybody else around him was something was going to happen to, but nothing was going to happen to him. He had that glow about him until his last summer. We had this, this, this time that summer, about a month, where we worked on the house together, he and his brother and another fellow, a guy that had lived with them when they were a child. And the three of us, four of us, started rebuilding the family home, doing redoing rooms and that sort of thing. And his brother and I watched him like a hawk. And he was good. He didn't need liquor anymore. The liquor was involved in it at one point, but he didn't, he was, he didn't need liquor anymore. In fact, he had stopped smoking. He was real quiet. My mother called me and told me I had to come back. My father had been in an accident. And the, f the first question I asked her was how many other people were killed because I, I figured the way he would drive and everything, I figured that, that he hit a school bus or something. And then, the, you know, I got there to the hospital and they wouldn't let me in at first and then finally all the doctors started coming around and talking to me and everything and and then they said I could go in. And then when I went in, I just, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't, um, I couldn't face it. You know, it's, my father used to give me beating, uh, beatings, spankings or whatever. I mean, I used to be a, such a jerk as a kid. He used to, you know, really give me, be and I don't remember a thing. I couldn't remember a beating. I, I, I would bet you somebody could hypnotize me and I still wouldn't remember something like that. I can only... I can only remember the the few nice things, the little, the little things, the walks that we would take, even if he didn't talk, just just the the walks, the walks in the country that we would take, the um, the things he used to do when I was a kid. Um, he used to, he used to cover my stomach with soap draw faces and laugh, give him a personality and laugh about it. And those kinds of things.
he could be really awful towards me. But in my mind, he was a really wonderful person that never really had a problem. You know, it's funny, when I think about other men that, that I knew growing up as a kid, and some of whom were more successful than my father and talked more and would, would want to do stuff with you, and, you know, I, and, and I would think, oh, I wish Dad could be more like that or whatever. In the end, I don't wish he had been anybody else. Aside from the fact that I didn't want him to die, I wouldn't have wanted to change a thing. He was better than all of them. Lost and Found, Stories About Fathers, was produced for Soundprint by myself, Larry Massett, with help from Barrett Golding, Bob Burris, and Henry Dennis. This is HearingVoices.com. Hearing Voices is supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people, and the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes a great nation deserves great art. Our producers are Scott Carrier, Ann Hepperman, Larry Massett, and Kara Oler. Our intern is Max Darham. Mix engineer is Robin Wise of soundimagery.com. Executive producer is Barrett Golding. From NPR, National Public Radio, this is HearingVoices.com.